Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashtino. And uh, today there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about real quick just before diving into the main topic, which uh, I wanted to wrap up. I've been reminded by a few people that um, I kind of left the World War II series um, behind because we've had a lot of things going on here. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that uh, we covered a lot of things that were kind of urgent, like the election and, you know, uh, everything that was going on with that. So um, I had left World War II behind a little bit. I wanted to finish that up today. Uh, you know, we're basically just talking about the downfall of Japan um, and the ultimate victory of the United States and her allies in World War II. And we'll get to that. Um, I wanted to say... Uh, and I've been, <laughs> I've been on a little bit of a book buying spree as well. Um, for any of you who are like me, who are into history, and especially military history related things, um, Osprey Publishing, um, O S P R E Y. If you're into it, you already know them. You probably have a few books by them, but uh, you know almost every major. Military history book that I have is Osprey Publishing. I mean, all of my, my Rome at War books, and um, I just got a new one yesterday, and I uh, <laughs> had a friend laugh at me uh, because I, I purchased the book. It's uh, German Panzers or German Tanks, 1914 to 1918. And he was like, you know, Ashitino, you're one of the only people in the world I know who actually saw a book so specific about German tanks during World War One, and was like, "Yes, I need that book," and and I bought it because I, you know it, it is it's something I'm really interested in, um, and it's fascinating stuff. I love it. Um, you know, it's uh, I have another book coming in as we speak um, about German tanks, especially the uh, the A seven V, which was the main uh, German tank of World War One. Um, yeah, I don't. This is this is more than you wanted to know about German tanks in World War One, but it's kind of I view it as as kind of an, a, a delicious irony because in World War Two, Germany was known primarily for its tanks and and its its mobile warfare, and it's just kind of ironic that in World War One, uh, the German High Command up until the very almost the last year of the war. 1917 before they even recognized the need for tanks and by the time you know i mean these things don't get developed overnight it takes months and months and months before you can get something a prototype and then you have to start building it anyway i like i said i just thought it was kind of uh, it was kind of funny that germany which would become known for its tanks in world war ii in world war one uh managed to produce a handful of them um literally a handful of them um and there's only one remaining one. I don't know if I've mentioned before. One of the reasons why I want to go to Australia is at the Queensland Museum, they have the one remaining German tank from World War I, the A7V. It's a Mephisto. And it's there. It's, um, it was, it, originally it was outside and it suffered from the elements. And then eventually, you know, people got this idea of, well, maybe we should bring this in. You have to understand that one of the things about history um, is that up until fairly recently, 
there was no concept of real historical preservation. So these, these, you know, when I look around in Monroe, for example, where I live in Jamesburg is next door and it's like, oh, this is where this one, you know, house that dated back to, uh, the early 1800s and they demolished it and put up a gas station. And it's like, my God, why would you do that? And it's like, because back in the day, no one really thought about like, man, we should preserve some things. Um, movies were the same as I've talked about before. Um, you know, when movies, after they were done showing in the theaters, they simply either junked them, jumped, junked the film, or they took the film because it had silver in it. So they would basically just reclaim the silver from the film. But they didn't care to preserve the movies. They weren't making copies of it. And that's why so many movies, I think it's up to 90% of movies from, um, you know, the early, early era of movie making, uh, they're lost films. They're gone. They're gone forever. You know, unless you can find one. And as I always say, if you can, get, hit me up. I will fly out or drive out and... and and help you, uh, you know, get it to people. By this point, so many of those films, probably unless they've been kept in ideal situations, ideal climate-controlled situations, but if they've been in someone's attic um, in a part of the country where the temperatures get really high, really low, uh, it, it, sadly, they're probably ruined by now. But anyway, uh, yeah, back in the day, there was no sense of like, oh, let's, let's save a couple of these German tanks for the future. No, it was, you know, listen, scrap them, scrap all of them. I mean, some of the most famous things, HMS Dreadnought, the first Dreadnought battleship was scrapped in the 1920s. I mean, this was a battleship that changed naval warfare forever. It, it, was, it was the game changer. Uh, it sparked the uh, naval race that would result in the British and the Germans coming to blows with one another, amongst other things, but... You know, so at least, though, at least there is one A7V left in the world, original one, um, and it was outside for years, and the, the weather, the climate, and, you know, people are stupid, so they would, you know, write things on it and, and whatnot, uh, but now it's, it's inside, um, they restored it, and they put it inside in a climate-controlled uh, situation, so that's fantastic. Kudos to you, if you're listening to me from Australia, Good on you guys. Um, you know, that's, I'm, I'm very happy to hear about that. Um, you know, and, and at least there's one left. And now today, obviously, you know, we do try and save some things for posterity. But, you know, it wasn't a case back then. It wasn't, it wasn't thought of. In any case, uh, you're making that segue uh, into war. We left off with the Japanese on the, um, the hind foot. And as I said, one of the, the ironies of ironies... And I love ironies. Um, is that Japan? Japan viewed World War One as a fight which Germany eventually lost. Why? Not because their military wasn't top line. I mean, the German army was phenomenal. You know, they they really were. I mean, they were fighting against the French, the British, the Belgians at the same time, uh, and the Russians, and helping the Austrians out. Uh, you know, it, it, had they fought against any one of them individually, like had they fought the French army by itself, would have overrun them. The British army would have overrun them. Even the Russian army would have overrun them. They did, in fact. But eventually Germany ran afoul of the fact that by 1917 or so, by 1916-17, German industry was suffering from the British 
a blockade. They couldn't get supplies. Food started running short at home. And so Germany, and once the United States came in, you know, then it was game over. But Japan viewed that Germany lost because they didn't have the resources to fight a prolonged war. Germany needed to win that war in 1914. They didn't. Uh, the Battle of the Marne, if you remember, if you don't, go back and listen to my first episode about World War I. Battle of the Marne, and that was that. And then it just became four years of fruitless fighting before Germany eventually was, was defeated. So Japan's idea was, okay, so we need to develop a solid base because the Japanese islands are not the best place for agriculture and for, you know, uh, industrial resources. However, China, China is. China's got a tremendous amount of wealth, natural resources. So the Japanese are like, all right, we'll go over to China. We'll conquer China. One, two, three, be home by Christmas, as the Germans, uh, you know, thought they were going to be. And that would be that. So J Japan goes into China. But the Chinese had other plans for Japan. And they fought back. And they fought back heroically. Um, and they would not give in. And the Japanese ended up resorting to more and more violent reprisals against the Chinese in an effort to, you know, finally you know, make them cry uncle. And it didn't work. And because of this, the United States started looking at this and going, hmm, not happy about this. Plus, to be quite frank, you know, the United States, again, didn't want Japan becoming a global power. Uh, you know, it did threaten, possibly, some U.S. territories. So the Japanese uh, were, were committing these atrocities in China. And uh, then what happened was the United States cut off oil. So the Japanese decided, okay, now we have to hit the United States because we want to invade Southeast Asia where the oil and the rubber is, but we have to knock out the U.S. fleet. That's where Pearl Harbor comes. So in, in something that it was first brought to, there's a great game for the PC years ago. I was in high school, it was in the early 90s, called Command HQ. And at the back of the book, they had a little rundown, World War One, World War Two, And they said, you know, basically it said the ironic thing was that in order to avoid fighting a war in which they were at an economic disadvantage, Japan ended up getting provoked into a war with a country, the United States, whose economy was 16 times larger than the imperial Japanese economy. And over time, again, you're not winning with those odds. You just aren't. You know, so Japan, where we left off, Japan had been defeated in a series of battles in the Pacific. And the problem was that Japan could not make up for their losses. The U.S. could. But especially in fighter pilots. In the Great Marianas Turkey shoot, Japan lost the cream of the crop of its fighter pilots. It could not make these things up. You might be able to make new planes, but you can't. You can't get someone who's been flying a plane for a few years and then just put someone who's been flying a plane for six months or two months or one month and be like, all right, go out there and do the same. The United States, meanwhile, was going from victory to victory. The United States was island hopping. The Japanese were holding up on islands, basically waiting for the U.S. to come. But the U.S. wisely did not engage every island. They were like, well, we don't need this island if we can take this one. 
And the main goal for the United States was to take islands that were close enough to Japan, to the Japanese home islands, where they could start bombing them around the clock. Bombing had worked against Germany. It would work against Japan. It would actually work even better against Japan, sadly, because many Japanese houses were, were still uh, you know, built of wood um, completely, and so firebombing proved especially deadly uh, in certain places. But the United States eventually ended up uh, landing Okinawa, which is close enough, and, uh, you know, there's, of course, Iwo Jima is etched into everyone's memories. But once they got Okinawa, they were able to start bombing the Japanese homeland. And this was essentially the beginning of the end. The Japanese, by 1945, lacked the planes. You know, yes, they were using kamikazes. Um, kamikazes are actually counterproductive. I mean, the, the, the few remaining decent airmen that they had were being sacrificed, and a lot of new airmen who might have been able to be trained were being sacrificed. Um, and, and really with no, I mean, kamikazes never really, you know, caused any massive damage. Yes, they sunk a few ships. It was nothing. It was a drop in the bucket. Meanwhile, the United States was just going from strength to strength, especially once Germany had surrendered. And the Japanese home islands became the next question. We have to invade them. Now, the Japanese were prepared for a war of, even more than the Germans, a war of complete and total, like, fight to the death, meaning fight until there are no Japanese left, okay? Um, they were training, you know, children, teenagers, how to pretend that they were friendly and go up and detonate, you know, suicide attacks on U.S. soldiers and you know, they were sharpening pikes and bamboo sticks to, you know, create booby traps. Um, the U.S. military estimated uh, that in, in the attacks, which would have taken place in 1946, um, it would have been an absolute bloodbath, both for U.S. soldiers. They estimated, depending on which source you use, up to a quarter million casualties, and uh, at least well over a million for the Japanese in the initial stages. Um, more if the Japanese insisted on continuing to fight to the death. And there was every indication they would. Now, at the same time, the U.S. had cut off all supplies to Japan. Um, there was no longer anything coming in because of the naval blockade, submarines and, and, and uh, surface ships. So the one school of thought was, why don't we just wait them out? Wait them out. They're, they're going to start. We'll starve them out. I mean, you know, eventually, hey, even if they all decide we'd rather starve than surrender. Okay, well, then you starve. And once all of you have starved to death, we'll come in there. And, you know, the bottom line was it will save U.S. lives. However, there was another issue here. The Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was also interested in a few things. Number one, they were interested in taking the Korean Peninsula, and they were interested in the communist cause in China under Mao Zedong. The Soviets were hopeful, if they could get China to go communist, that would be a huge, huge win for global communism. 
So the United States was faced with an issue of the Soviet military, now that they were done with Germany, they were wheeling around to go and influence Asia. And the United States figured, we can't let this happen. We have to shorten this. We have to end this war because once the war is over, the Soviets will no longer have an excuse for going in, for attacking you know, anywhere else, they'll, they'll have to stop. Japan will surrender. You know, it won't, won't be something they can do. So the U.S. had this new weapon called the atomic bomb. Um, when they first tested the atomic bomb, the, uh, the, <laughs> the men who were in charge of the program, Oppenheimer and company, actually gave, I forget what the percentage was off the top of my head. I knew there was something I wanted to look up. But they said there is a small chance that basically we could detonate this and it could ignite the atmosphere of the planet and turn Earth into a giant fireball. And the military was like, eh, all right, well, th that's something that we're willing to risk. And I was like, okay. So they conducted a test and it was the most devastating weapon that had ever been used. I mean, it just dwarfed everything else, okay? It was nothing like um, anything that had been used before. Nothing. So the United States, you know, Truman hints to Stalin, FDR having died. Truman hints to Stalin, you know, uh, we've got this new bomb. And Stalin was like, I know my spies told me a while ago that you guys were working on this thing. I don't know the details, but don't worry, I'll, I'll figure them out eventually. Truman was like, note to self, make sure that we do a better job vetting the people working on this. But the United States told Japan, listen, surrender or else face prompt and utter destruction. And the Japanese military was like, what are they going to do? You know, they're just going to keep on bombing us. They're bluffing this and that. So they waited. And of course, the United States dropped one atomic bomb. Hiroshima absolutely blew the town to pieces. Um, it was something that, again, we're not talking about bombs falling and all of a sudden explosions and fires. This was a complete vaporization of people and an absolute kill zone flattening everything in the town. And the Japanese were like, holy cannoli, what just, I'm paraphrasing them, of course. Holy cannoli, what the heck was that? And the Japanese military was like, don't worry. They can't have more than one of those. Well, it turns out we did. And two days later, it bombed Nagasaki. Same result. Now, those are the only two atomic bombs the U.S. had at the time. But that was hardly common knowledge. Okay? That was hardly common knowledge. So, at that point, the Japanese military was like, yeah, screw it. Let him keep on doing it. You know, we'll, we'll go down fighting and this and that. But the emperor, to his credit, to Hirohito's credit, Hirohito was like, guys, this is going to be the end of our civilization. We will not exist anymore. This is not just regular bombing where we can go, you know, into a bunker or something where we can rebuild. This is a bomb that is unlike anything. This is a weapon of such extreme violence that if they do have more of these things, it's going to be the end of us. They'll just bomb all of our major cities. 
they'll wipe out you know fifty seventy five thousand people with one bomb and 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 the land will become completely devastated and so the Japanese finally decided, okay, it's time to surrender. It was the emperor who had to make the decision. Nobody would have made that decision otherwise. Um, you know, Japan was still an extremely feudal society at that point in, in many ways. So the emperor gives the authorization. USS Missouri pulls into Tokyo Bay. Douglas MacArthur is there. They sign the treaty, surrender treaty, unconditional surrender, and it ends the war. Um, and it, it did forestall some things. The Soviets did not take over the entire Korean Peninsula. They did ha- install a communist government in the north, which five years later would invade the south and touch off the Korean conflict. And with China, the Soviets did help out, and Mao Zedong finally ended up uh, defeating Chiang Kai-shek, driving him and his buddies to Taiwan, and creating a communist government in China. But that's for another time. That's for another time. We will discuss that, but that's for another time. But World War II ended um, with Japan in, in, in complete ruins, U.S. soldiers occupying Japan. MacArthur basically became yeah, his title. <laughs> I'm sure MacArthur wouldn't have minded if someone had said, uh, we're now claiming, we're now anointing you God Emperor of the uh, Empire of Japan. MacArthur would have, you know, it probably wouldn't have even smiled. It just would have been like, yeah, that's, I, I was expecting that. You may go now, you know. MacArthur, very, very, uh, very cocky in a way. Um, but he was good, and when you're good, you can be a little cocky. But anyway, MacArthur uh, became uh, the, the de facto emperor of Japan. They kept the emperor on because the idea was the people still listen to the emperor. And if we need the emperor, if we need the people to do something, we get the emperor to say, stop killing American soldiers who are on our territory. The people will listen. And that was true. That wasn't the case in Germany, but Germany, on the other hand, I mean, Germany was just, you know, the Russians were in Berlin. Everyone else was everywhere else. There was, there was nothing left. Um, <clears throat> and the Germans were, were, I don't want to say more pragmatic. There certainly were many Germans who were willing to fight to the death. I mean, members of the SS, groups that had committed atrocities in the Eastern Front. I mean, they would rather fight to the death than, than you know, be held accountable for things. The Japanese, by the way... Um, very few people ended up being punished with death in Japan. Unlike Germany, where the Allies went out there and hanged quite a few people. Um, not just in the Nuremberg trials, but there were there were other trials like in Poland and other places where they hanged individuals who you know had committed crimes against their countries. Um, and then, of course, there's the people that, for example were with, um, you know, that, that ended up in the Soviet Union and just never got out of there and, and died there years later, you know, in appalling conditions. In Japan, there were a few people that did get hanged, okay? There were. One of the reasons why not a lot did was because many of the top-ranking generals in Japan simply didn't make it to the end of the war. Um, when their armies were defeated on an island, um, they would commit ritual suicide, okay? So... 
you know, they're, they're certainly not around to be, you know, you can't hang someone who's already killed themselves. Um, unlike German officers who did surrender, some of them killed themselves too, don't get me wrong. But with Japan, it was more of a, you know, it was, it, you have to understand the culture that surrender is considered the greatest shame that you can have. In Germany, it was like, all right, listen, we fought a good war. We tried our best. But, you know, we lost. So let's, uh, you know, we surrender. And, uh, you know, that, that's that. In Japan, it was like, well, you know what? Here's the deal. We're going to fight this one to the end. And then those who, you know, don't manage to go out on the final bonsai charge, you know, we kill ourselves and that's it, you know. And so uh, there was that. But also the United States felt the need to build Japan back up because we needed a bulwark, we needed a, someone to stand against communism in the region. And the idea was that if we could build Japan back up, not their military, mind you. Japan was not allowed to have a military for a little, and, and then they had to promise their military would only be used for defensive purposes. That's changed recently in light of uh, some of China's uh, uh, more aggressive steps. But we also took a lot of stuff from the Japanese, you know, just like in Germany, where after the war, we got Werner von Braun and all these other guys and snuck them out of Germany so that they work on our rocket program and our space program. So I always say that, you know, the space program was not USA versus USSR. It was Germany versus USSR. Only the Germans were all working for the United States. You know, we got all these guys because we wanted them. We were like, you know, the heck with that, okay? Yeah, I know you were designing rockets that were killing thousands of people in Britain, but, you know, the war's over now, and we have some bigger issues here. And the Japanese, we, we let a lot of them off because we, we shared, they shared um, intelligence with us, shared some of the medical discoveries that they'd found by committing unspeakable acts on Chinese civilians. Um... And so, you know, to this day, to this day, Japan has never really, never really issued the kind of apology that Germany has. Germany has absolutely come clean on the Holocaust. Um, you know, I mean, denying the Holocaust is a crime in Germany. They have freedom of speech, but the freedom of speech ends. It's like in the United States, we always say, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. In Germany, you can't deny the Holocaust. They won't put up with it. They're like, no, 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 we're going to accept this stuff. Okay? And even more recently, you've had the Germans even come to terms with the fact that, for example, for years, there was this idea that you had the, uh, that it, it wasn't the German, the here, the actual military that was doing all the atrocities. It was the the SS Einsatzgruppen. It was it was these paramilitaries. The 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 actual German army was heroically fighting, like any other army. They were proud of what they did. You know, they followed their orders and everything. But they weren't killing Jews and stuff. They were just, you know, they they were out there in the field, you know, doing their job as soldiers of the fatherland. Uh, but we do know now that that's a lot. Of that is just kind of. Um, it's wishful thinking at best. The German military was 
every bit as involved in a lot of what happened on the Eastern Front as far as the, the mass murders of people, um, especially Jews, Soviet prisoners of war. Um, you know, they knew, generals knew, you know, lower-ranking guys knew what was going on and were complicit in a lot of places. But Germany, to their credit, they have absolutely come out there. They don't try and hide it. They don't try today uh, anymore to claim, that you know, they had nothing to do with the Holocaust has been blown out of proportion. No, no, no. You know, they're very big about that, okay? And that's good. That's a good thing. Japan... Not so much. I mean, if you ever want to be thoroughly nauseated, I know everyone's like, ooh, what can I do to be thoroughly nauseated? Well, read up on what's called the rape of Nanking, okay? Um, What the Japanese did in China during the war. Um, it It is absolutely horrific. I mean, you know, they would have competitions to see who could behead the most people in a certain time period. Um, Babies were tossed up in the air and caught on bayonets. Um, You know, the the rape, murder, and pillaging that went on in China was on a level of absolute barbarism. And the Japanese have never really, you know, there have been some kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, what happened in World War II? Uh, Yeah, it was, you know, listen, you know, it was a terrible war and everyone suffered. No, you guys kind of started the war out there and you guys were responsible. You don't read stories about the Chinese doing this to Japanese people. You don't read stories about the U.S. doing this to Japanese people. You do read stories about the Japanese doing this to other people. And so... Um, you know, today you get these Japanese prime ministers that go and visit the shrine to the dead World War II soldiers, and the Chinese get very, they get pissy about it, and one can understand that, okay? And believe me, I'm not, I'm not looking to defend the current Chinese government at all, but I, I, I will absolutely speak up for the Chinese people, um, you know, many of whom alive today had grandparents, or parents, depending on how old they are, who lived through this, okay? Um, you know, there, there are many alive today. I mean, that number, the number of people who are actually alive during the event is shrinking as it is, I was reading somewhere that there's something like 5,000 World War II veterans are dying a day around the world. It's, uh, was it around the world or it was somewhere? But um, it was, there was, uh, sorry about that, I knocked into something here. You know, that generation is quickly leaving us. That generation is leaving us. And soon you won't have any direct connection to it. You won't have people that can say, I remember when the Japanese invaded, okay? I remember when, uh, you know, there was this battle or that battle. Much the same with the Holocaust. You're running out of time to have people who can say, yes, I remember when the Germans came to my city, and whatnot. So, um, you know, Japan, when they go to these places and they don't issue this full apology, it, it aggravates people, and rightly so. It should. Um, you know, but they're, they're not going to come completely clean on it, and that's all there is to it. So, you know, we have to, we have to be able to deal with this. But the United States came out of World War II as one of the two global superpowers, 
okay? And the other power being the Soviet Union. The entire order of the world had changed. Even after World War I, despite the, 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 the trials and tribulations, Britain, France were still the major powers. After World War II, Britain and France, within a decade, they've lost all of their colonies, okay? They've lost all their colonies. Within a decade, India has become India and Pakistan, French Indochina, Vietnam, uh, Africa, there are uprisings all over the Middle East, they're start, you know, you, you have an Israel all of a sudden in the, 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 the Palestinian mandate. So the world changes completely. It's one of those times where you do have this massive change. And so um, I, that's, that's the end of World War II. And also it ushers us into the atomic age. Once the atomic bomb, the atomic genie is out of the bottle... That's it. Now it becomes an issue of everyone realizes, holy crap, you can make a bomb like this. Let's try and make one, and let's try and make one more powerful. And from this point out, the United States and the Soviet Union are in a bit of a race to see who can create an even more powerful bomb that can do even more damage. And then it becomes a case of, okay, we've gotten the bombs pretty powerful, now how do we deliver them? And then eventually you have rocket technology, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and we enter the area, the era of MAD, mutually assured destruction, because there comes a point where the Soviets and the Americans are looking at one another and can basically annihilate one another simultaneously. There would be no winners. And so even though the major wars like World War I and World War II, those wars are over with. You're never going to have them again. However, what you are going to have is you're going to have dozens of little proxy wars. Okay? You're going to have the issues. Israel versus the Arab countries. You're going to have the Vietnamese versus the French, then later the Americans. The Koreans, North Korea, South Korea. You're going to have, you know, in, in, in South America. You're going to have in Africa, in, in, in North Africa, in South Africa. You're going to have all of these conflicts and they're going to be supported by either the Soviets or the United States. And so we're not waging war with one another, but we are waging war with one another through other people. And that's going to happen until uh, the, the 90s when the Soviet Union finally collapses and you no longer have any, uh, any competition with the United States. So... That's where we are at the end of World War II. A horrible war, a war that consumed, you know, not just tens of millions of people, uh, but that introduced us to the horrors of, of you know, um, basically industrialized genocide um, in the Holocaust and things we're still living with today. Uh, you know, it introduced us to, you know, the, the, some of the worst of humanity, but also some of the best of humanity. And people that risked their lives, people who ended up being executed for helping other people, for helping Jews in Germany and France and other places. Um, you know, and like I said, with the United States, you know, the United States once again showed that when pushed, they would punch back and punch back hard. 
and the United States goes on in post-war Europe. And we'll talk about this one time. I would love to do an episode, and I will in the future, um, about how the United States, um, the economy in the United States in the 40s and 50s, the boom economy, is basically because we're the only ones making stuff and no one else has anything because everything's been blown up. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating how the U.S. economy ends up kicking it into fifth gear and sixth gear, if you will. Um, you know, and you know, then just as the U.S. is at the top, the U.S. decides to get suckered into a war in Vietnam. So like I said in my other podcast about Korea and Vietnam, it wasn't like the U.S. didn't think that they could do this. They had done it in Korea. Could they do it in Vietnam? Why not? There was no reason to believe that they couldn't. So anyway, we're going to end with that today. Um, as always, any comments or questions, please let me know about it. Um, I hope everyone is being smart and being safe out there. Uh, unfortunately, we are having a rise in coronavirus here in the United States. Um, please, let's just do the right thing here. Don't be, you know, I know it sucks not being able to hang out with family and friends, but we have to do this for a little while. We have to. It might be that we can't have Thanksgiving this year. I'm aggravated because Christmas is my favorite holiday of the year, and I'm aggravated that we can't have a lot of people over. But I'll tell you what, as much as, as much as it's going to upset me, I'm going to do it because it needs to be done to stop this horrible virus. And the sooner we get this thing taken care of, the sooner we can all go back to, you know, a sense of normalcy. And we will. We will. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing that's been thrown at humans so far that we haven't beat. If the, the bubonic plague didn't kill us, when it killed a third of all people in Europe, and we didn't have any understanding of germ theory or, you know, we're going around whipping people, you know, <laughs> because of it. If that didn't kill us, I refuse to believe in 2020 that this is going to kill us. It's, it's not. But we want to get rid of it as soon as possible. So anyway, for all of you out there, please stay safe, be smart, and have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to all of you, my beloved fans, fairly soon. Bye-bye.